Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. How lovely the little river is, with its dark, changing wavelets. It seems to me like a living companion while I wander along the bank and listen to its low, placid voice. We occupied George Eliot's parents' old bedroom where she was born, so I think she'd very much recognise the house. It becomes a kind of a, a local kind of mission, I think, for people to identify the people who appear later in her books. It's funny, when I read the novel, I envisaged it as a largely a wooden building. And here it is, the Georgian brick one. It shows how the reader writes the novel themselves. A wide plain where the broadening floss hurries on between its green banks to the sea and the loving tide, rushing to meet it, checks its passage with an impetuous embrace. That's the beginning of The Mill on the Floss, the most autobiographical of George Eliot's seven novels. The Mill on the Floss was published in April 1860. It was her third work of fiction after Scenes of Clerical Life and Adam Bede. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode we're going to run, walk and float beside Maggie Tulliver as she grows up on the banks of the turbulent River Floss. And I should also say straight away that although the book is set in Lincolnshire, uh, we recorded this episode in and around the market town of Nuneaton in Warwickshire, uh, because that's where George Eliot grew up. It's where she spent her childhood and teenage years. And many of the scenes, locations and characters in the Mill on the Floss were directly inspired by her memories of that childhood. I am thrilled that today we're being joined by the novelist, poet and man of letters, Louis de Bernier. Welcome, Louis. Thank you very much for having me. Louis is the author of 11 novels, including the best-selling and award-winning Captain Corelli's Mandolin and Birds Without Wings. And the 11th is due to be published in November 2020. That's right, it is. The Autumn of the Ace. And um, you're also a poet, Louis, and, and your recent book of poems, The Cat in the Treble Clef, I love that um, poem that I've heard you read out loud based on your grandmother's diaries. Is that right? Oh, yes, from my grandmother's diaries. It's, it's, it's a list of extracts, uh, snippets of all the things that she got up to as a young girl. And what shines through it is how much she adored her father. 
It's just, it's wonderful, really beautifully put together. Louis, I've heard you say that The Mill on the Floss is one of the books that has, that inspired you to become a novelist. Is that still the case? And if so, in what way has it inspired you? Um, I had to study it for A-level, luckily. I'm so pleased about that. And I think, probably like you and every other male reader, I fell terribly in love with Maggie Tulliver. She's exactly my kind of girl. And um, the Welsh poet Owen Shears once pointed out to me that all my female protagonists were just versions of Maggie Tulliver. (laughs) And I I realised, at least in my first four books, that's true. (laughs) Subsequently, I've tried to alter it a bit. But she she, she is my kind of girl. And um, I admire the book on so many levels. I, I think... All of, all of the characters, even the minor characters, really come to life. They're wonderfully done. You know, the, the, the aunts, the, the Cleggs, the, the Pulitzer yes. Deans. Yes, so and, much And, and minor there. characters like Bob, is Bob Jakin. They're, they're all so perfectly realised, even though they don't have all that much space to themselves necessarily. But I think, I think what I admire the most, really, is what I admire the most in Thomas Hardy, which is that he writes about ordinary people in difficult situations. There, there aren't really any heroes, there aren't any countesses or duchesses or terribly important people. It's just ordinary people facing up to the difficulties of their, of their lives. And I, wonder, I often wonder whether, you know, Hardy might have been a fan of Elliot or whatever. It strikes me as likely. Uh, and also, that ni- neither of them is, is committed to the happy ending. Yes, well, and more on that later. Mm. I, th- I think that's so true that George Eliot was drawing on reality and, and you know, the world that she knew, and that's exactly what we're going to be exploring yeah. today. She said she was a realist, but uh, she wasn't a pessimist in the way that Hardy was. But mm-hmm. not, a, yes. not really an optimist either. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's start walking through the streets of Nuneaton, and we'll um, we'll talk more about it as we go. Yes. Saint Ogg's is one of those old old towns which impress one as a continuation and outgrowth of nature, as much as the nests of the bowerbirds or the winding galleries of the white ants, a town which carries the traces of its long growth and history like a millennial tree. Mill on the Floss is set near this fictional town of St Ogg's in Lincolnshire, but I think I guess we can map that onto... Nuneaton in some ways. She'd already fictionalised Nuneaton in uh, her first book of fiction, Scenes of Clerical Life, when she called it Milby. Um, And in fact, look, we're just passing now the George Eliot Hotel here on Bridge Street in Nuneaton. It used to be called the Bull Hotel, but she describes it as the Red Lion in Scenes of Clerical Life. So she knew this pub well. And I expect we'd find it rather weird to see her own face hanging outside it today. We're going to see a lot of them, I think, as we travel around today. There's lots of things named after George Eliot here. There's the hospital's called George Eliot Hospital. There's a school called George Eliot School. Now, this garden is another of these places named after her. It's the George Eliot Memorial Garden. And that obelisk we can see through the trees is a memorial to Eliot. And there's an annual wreath-laying ceremony when people gather around that obelisk and, and uh, commemorate her with a wreath. George Eliot wrote The Mill on the Floss in 1859 and it was first published in 1860. And it's worth just noting that she, she didn't write it here where we are today. She wrote it while she was living in South London with George Henry Lewis near, you know, on the border of Wimbledon. 
I, I think it often helps to write in exile. Somehow things seem fresher at a distance. I wrote three of my novels in Southfields, oddly enough. Two set in South America and one in Greece. <laughs> <laughs> but just, just near where Elliot was? Yes, just very near, yes. Right. Not in quite such a posh place. <laughs> oh, well, there must be something in the water down there that's uh, conducive. There definitely is. It's the Wandle. <laughs> the Wandle. <laughs> Fantastic. Of course, George Elliot is a pen name. Her name was Mary Ann Evans, sometimes... She styled it Marianne or, or, or Marianne hyphenated. But this was a pen name she took for her works of fiction. Um, she'd previously published journalism under her own name, Marianne Evans, but she, didn't, she felt she didn't want to be confused for a silly lady novelist as she wrote an essay on that subject. So she chose George Eliot as her pen name. And it seems like she wanted to distance herself from what was considered a, a female novel at the time. Yes, sir. It's, it's never been the case that women writers are less successful than men. It's just that their reputations tend not to survive as long. And I think in the case of her generation, it would have been because of women writing very charming and elegant drawing room romances or, yes. or um, you know, tales of romantic daring do or something. And that was what she didn't, she just wasn't um, temperamentally suited to do herself. Yes, yes. And not interested in sort of being classed alongside that. These early novels, Scenes of Clerical Life, Adam Bede and The Mill on the Floss, the novelist A.S. Byatt has described those as her natural histories. Um, I'm uncertain as to what A.S. Byatt meant by by natural histories in this context. Um, Because when I think of a natural history book, I think of, uh, say, an old-fashioned book about, about the animals of the forest or the plants of the moorland. And... I suppose if you look at it from that aspect, it could be that she's th- that she's she is just thinking about, you know, the ordinary people who inhabit a certain place at a certain time, and that's the natural history, perhaps. They feel like the most autobiographical of her works, as almost as if she's uh, conducting field research on her own childhood environment, or perhaps making very little up. Right, right. Just before she started working on the Mill on the Floss, she wrote a letter to her publisher, saying that. Art must be either real and concrete or ideal and eclectic. Both are good and true in their way, but my stories are of the former kind. So maybe it's that sense of being true to her own experience and things she knew. Being rooted in what is. Mm, mm, mm. It's interesting that while Eliot was writing The Mill on the Floss, she also read the newly published Origin of Species by Darwin. And in that line you read earlier, Louis, about St Ogg's, there's a sense of a kind of evolutionary basis to this uh, novel. There are several points in the book where she contrasts the past with the present uh-huh. and say we've moved on from there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed those. Yes, but there's a kind of part of a process and that that's what these characters are going through. OK, well, let's move on from this obelisk. I can see through this road bridge over the canal, the building that I believe is the Nuneaton Museum, where I think we are expected. Hello. We're here with Catherine Nisbet, the museum and arts manager at the Nuneaton Museum and Art Gallery. Catherine, could you just describe the room we're standing in and, and what we're looking at here? 
We're in a room set, really, and it represents Elliot's home at the Priory. So it's later in her career when she's reaped the rewards of a very successful writing career uh, and is living quite a pleasant life. And yes, she's shown in her armchair. We've got her hair down because there's a number of accounts of her wearing her hair down. And there's even an account of her earlier in her youth um, when she's editing. She's sprawled across the chair drinking champagne as she, uh, she's editing, which I think is a fantastic, <laughs> Sounds great. a rather decadent way to write. <laughs> yeah, editors were like that when I started out. <laughs> Um, she's pictured with George Henry Lewis. He's, he's very much credited with helping her career. He was a writer, a factual writer himself, but he is very much the buffer between her and the editors and softens the blow of any criticism or poor feedback that she gets and is very much a part of, of her writing career. And then you've got John Cross from them, who's a, a mutual friend of theirs. He's her banker, so he deals with a lot of the finances and helps her deal with actually a lot of appeals for money that came to her. Um, later in, in the, both of their lives, she loses Lewis and he loses his mother and they ended up actually being married for about the last sort of 12 months of her life. Right, yes, just at the very end before she died. Because of her social position, she was living with a man. She, it was very difficult for her to go. She, she was very reluctant to, to do the visiting that a woman would normally do in case she got turned away at the door as being not quite okay. So her their mechanism was to invite everybody over to theirs. And so she had these literary salons, so there were always people coming in and out of their house, mm. and she was sort of held court in her own home, if you yeah. like. And Catherine, I mean, standing as we are in these surroundings, as if we'd walked into George Eliot's room, what do you think she was like as a person? I think she's quite a, a complex character. I think the various things that happened in her life changed her a lot. Uh, she's a carer for both her mother and her father. She's entering quite a competitive world when she goes to London. She's travelled quite a lot, so she's got, a, she's got all that travel um, experiences. She's actually very unwell for a lot of her life as well. There's frequent bouts of illness for her and Lewis, and so that can be a, a struggle to write. What's quite interesting when you read her, uh, her diaries and her letters is she really doesn't like the domestic scene. I think right. maybe once she'd been housekeeper for her dad for a few years, um, maybe the appeal of that paled rather, but she's always complaining about having to find servants and people bothering her with this and that, and she can't get on with her writing, basically. Um, and she herself received an awful lot of criticism for yes. her looks, and there's some very, very unkind things written about her, both in print and in private letters at the time, which, particularly when she was with John Cross and he was so much younger, and people accused him of trying to dress younger and things. So she had the kind of social media experience that perhaps a lot of people get now, but she was getting it in right. polite society in London. Yes, in but I, I, there was a letter where Henry James described her saying, she has a low forehead, a dull grey eye, a vast pendulous nose, a huge mouth full of uneven teeth, and a chin and jawbone qui n'en finissent pas. Uh, but then he goes on to say, now in this vast ugliness resides a most powerful beauty which in a very few minutes steals forth and charms the mind so that you end as I ended in falling in love with her. And I, I wonder if we could talk a little about the comparison between... George Eliot, the person, and her character, Maggie Tulliver. Because there's an element of that with Maggie, isn't there? That people say she's too dark, she's, too, she's not going to be as pretty as her cousin, but, but there's something about her that's incredibly attractive and 
Yes, her, her aunts all say that, you know, Mrs. Clegg and so say that she's too dark and she's too tall, don't they? Yes. And that her hair is too wild and unfree. And, and, and actually, George Eliot makes it quite clear that these are the things that make her attractive. Yes, yes. Yes, and you feel like that she was talking from personal experience there. Yes, I think she must have been. She had a very attractive older sister, Chrissy. Um, George Eliot did, and I think there were probably some very unfavourable comparisons made comparisons. when she was younger about why aren't you more like your right. elder So hence the comparisons between Maggie and Lucy. Yes, yeah. Lucy Dean. Yeah. So I think that is something she'd experienced, really. And, 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 and is that one of the motivations for her to become so intellectually precocious because she can't do her, outdo her sister in looks and yes. Isaac's the son, so how do you compete? Well, perhaps you become the cleverest, most accomplished little girl. And she has that line about Maggie Tulliver when she's still a little girl, when Maggie's father says, she's too cute for a woman, I'm afraid, meaning acute, sort of clever. An over-cute woman's no better nor a long-tailed sheep. She'll fetch none the bigger price for that. And you feel that's real sort of pain that George Eliot's talking from there, knowing that she was an, inte an intelligent child. Now, Catherine, you've got some amazing-looking things here for us to look at. What, what, have, what are we looking at here? I've got a selection of items out. Um, the first image here is Isaac, her brother. Now, he's meant to have been the model for Tom Tulliver yes. and for that relationship. So, yes, it's quite interesting because obviously there was that estrangement with them for many years and he becomes reconciled or at least acknowledges her once she's married to John Cross and she's a respectable woman. Yes. So, um, yeah, I mean, right, right from the beginning and, and the coming out of scenes of clerical life, people locally are seeing connections, they're seeing places, they're seeing people in the stories and, and it becomes a kind of a, a local kind of mission, I think, for people to identify the people who appear later in her books. How interesting. People, I guess, probably rather wanting to claim that they were the model for people. And then other people maybe wanting to distance themselves from their... Uh... I had six people claiming to be Captain Corelli. Really? Yeah, did you? I did, yeah. <laughs> and was, it, was, was, any, was there a grain of truth in it, or was it...? No, no, um, but there were some funny, funny things. Like, for example, my Captain Corelli didn't play the mandolin; he played the piano. Things like that. It doesn't matter. That, that, that was that was, I think, from a woman in Crete. You know, right, who said right. she had had an affair with Captain Corelli, but he was a pianist. You know, and, and uh, the Daily Mail at one point decided that my father was the real Captain Corelli. <laughs> he, was I guess... he was thrilled with, so he played up to that. <laughs> I mean, it was partly caused by the fact that because she was sort of writing under a pen name at that point, a local gentleman who'd got a journalistic past and was a bit of a bounder, I suppose they'd have said, very, very well-known in the posteries and pubs, um, they all assumed it must be him because he'd been educated and a man and he knew these stories. Uh, and in the contested authorship and a lot of the letters written, it's about... Well, he knew these people. How could she know these people? And it became part of that evidence. And, and it's what? I mean, it was when he started to try and sell the rights abroad that she had to right. then claim and say, no, actually, it's, it's me. Right. <laughs> right. When he started to try and profit from it, that there was, a, there was a problem. And various local people stood up for him and the educated people around here were sort of saying yes. it's him. Because he was saying he hadn't had any... Um, of the money from Blackwoods for the books, which is why he was still so poor and having to borrow oh, money bizarre. off people. Gosh, I didn't realise that. Um, I thought I'd get a few personal items out yeah. for you as well. Um, they don't normally have their curlers, but these are a pair of her shoes that belong to her. Gosh. And they kind of show that rise in status from 
daughter of a land agent who they thought that she was, one time she was quoted to be the richest woman in England after Queen Victoria. Really? I'd, on the proceeds of her books? She was a very, very savvy businesswoman. Very savvy. When you read her books, and she's very, very involved in what edition should be sold for what amount of money, and should we be bringing that edition out yet because we haven't sold those? And and it's very interesting because we've got her some of her father's diaries, and that's attention to every penny that he had is what you see in her dealings with her publishers. Gosh, these shoes are extraordinary with very elegant design with ribbons and. And so, such narrow feet. She had such small feet. Absolutely. Did she play an instrument? Yes, she was a very, very good pianist. So um, we do have a book in, in the collection, actually, which is a music manuscript book, which uh -huh. is um, written out in her own hand, and it's for choral uh, works. And we think that maybe one of the first things that attracted to Christianity was the music that was associated with churches. But she must have been very engaging as a, as a small child because um, she was allowed A, to go and use the library at Arby, but she was also allowed to use their piano. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for welcoming us to the museum and, and showing us all these fantastic objects. We, I feel like we've got a really good sense of who Elliot was as a person now, um, and it'll be perfect for us now exploring the countryside around her childhood home. I hope you have a really enjoyable day. Thank, thank you. you very much. One of her frequent walks, when she was not obliged to go to St Ogg's, was to a spot that lay beyond what was called the hill, an insignificant rise of ground crowned by trees, lying along the side of the road which ran by the gates of Dorcott Mill. A by-road turned off and led to the other side of the rise, where it was broken into very capricious hollows and mounds by the working of an exhausted stone quarry so long exhausted that both mounds and hollows were now clothed with brambles and trees. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. So, we've just been dropped off at the edge of an area of woodland called Griff Hollows, and this, I believe, is the basis for the red deeps in the Mill on the Floss, which is this area of rough ground near Dorcott Mill where Maggie comes to spend time on her own. So we're standing on a road which is in fact called Dorcott Road, I imagine, after the mill in the novel. And let's walk now into this area of, of Griff Hollows. I'm wondering if it ever really was a quarry. Yes, I wonder that. I know there was a stone quarry a bit further south. So maybe she was kind of combining the two areas but it definitely as we walk towards it it does feel like that um broken land of capricious hollows that she's talking about these paths must have been made you know much more user-friendly today but you still get a sense of this kind of maze-like place with little paths going off in different directions yes, sort of overcrowded with um goat willow and hazel and Ivy, nettles. So this is where Maggie comes to be on her own, but also where she's caught meeting Philip Wakeham. And Philip was at school with her brother Tom, and she befriends him as a child, but he's also the son of 
the man who ruins her father financially. And so within the family, he's a kind of uh, a great villain who Tom, her brother, hates. But there's something about him. He's, a, he's sensitive, he's artistic. He's got a hunchback, which is one of the things that is appealing to uh, Maggie. And she finds herself drawn to him, even though she doesn't want to upset her, her father and her brother. So we can really imagine Maggie coming here and, and meeting Philip in secret. And he, he paints her portrait here, sitting against a tree. We could imagine them in this very spot where we're standing now. How would you describe him as a character, Louis? He's had humility forced upon him by his physical frailty, mm-hmm. his hunchback and so on. And he's, he's a small stature and sort of slight physique as well. So he's, he's sort of born to expect rejection, perhaps. Mm. He is very frightened of rejection, but he, he, I think his sensitivity and his, his artistic nature, his musical nature, is something that Maggie connects with very strongly. Yes, he's got something that maybe Tom, her brother, doesn't have, and yeah. that's what she sees in him. And, uh, and of course, as a, as, as a young man, anyway, he would have presented no kind of sexual challenge to a girl like her, so it would be easy for her to be friends with him. Right. And then it's rather shocking to them both when they realise there are, they do have feelings for each other. Yeah. There's a line where Philip says, it seems to me we can never give up longing and wishing while we are thoroughly alive. There are certain things we feel to be beautiful and good, and we must hunger after them. How can we ever be satisfied without them until our feelings are deadened? And I think that, that feels like an instinct that Maggie shares, that there's a, she feels these feelings very strongly this great these passions it's the romantic manifesto isn't it right. that's exactly it right that you've got to there's, pursue there, your there must be something more than this something more intense mm-hmm. you know something to lift you out of the sort of you know doing the washing up and making your bed right you're right <laughs> one of the things i think is extraordinary about this novel is the way that time passes in it and in a way there are sections of it which could be a story in their own right, but she shows us how these relationships change over time. And mm. the way that these characters grow up as well and grow up in different ways. And I think that's partly what Philip is saying there is he's sort of he's saying that as we grow up we need to choose the right things to struggle for. And to fulfil our own natures. Right. Oh there's there's a train of thought that humans are the rational animal which I, I think the religious Puritans tend to adhere to that you, you've got to keep your feelings under control, you've got to keep everything, you know, obey the rules, etc., mm-hmm. etc. But actually, from my point of view anyway, we're not the rational animal, we're the emotional animal. And what we do is use our reason to, to get what we want from our emotions. Mm-hmm. That's the way I see the human race. And I, I, think, I think that George Eliot might have been along the same lines. Yes. Certainly, Maggie and Tom feel like they're those sort of opposite sides of that where Tom is so practical and pragmatic and he's full of common sense and he's he's much more respectful of of um you know respectability than Maggie is a stronger instinct for respectability than she has so he he he, he, in a way I think perhaps represents that puritanical rational Mm. way of looking at things and she represents the more romantic passionate way of looking Mm. at things it looks to me as though Elliot definitely wants us to take Maggie's side Absolutely. But you, but you're all the same. You do feel for Tom 
don't you? That he, he, he is in a bit of a quandary having this wild, unaccountable sister. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. In, in an true. age, in an yes, age, in the, at the time, yeah. In an age when your only choice yes. was to get married or be a nun. Yes. It gives you more respect for Elliot herself, given that, that she followed her heart. She lived with a man who was married and took the public disgrace that that involved. And maybe by describing these two, you know, Maggie and Tom, these two different sides of the human character she's acknowledging she knows that that's difficult but she's chosen mm. her path we can imagine maggie tulliver and george Eliot walking from their childhood home to this spot let's follow that route backwards let's walk out of griff hollows or red deeps and head back to griff house which was george Eliot's childhood home which is down the road we can hear Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And this is Dolcott Mill. I must stand a minute or two here on the bridge and look at it, though the clouds are threatening and it is far on in the afternoon. Even in this leafless time of departing February, it is pleasant to look at. Perhaps the chill, damp season adds a charm to the trimly-kept, comfortable dwelling house, as old as the elms and chestnuts that shelter it from the northern blast. That looks, that, that looks like a modern build. Yeah, it does to me. It must be the bit on the left. On the left, Henry. Gosh, oh, here we are. Gosh, you really get a sense of it here. You can see the old driveway coming from the road and here's the old possibly 18th century frontage of the house with what looks like the original front door we're standing outside what is still called griff house this is the house that george Eliot grew up in and the model for dulcet mill in mill on the floss it's today it's a it's a beef eater restaurant attached to a premier inn hotel so it's 
it's not the kind of literary museum that you might expect it to be. Um, Is it still a holy place? But <laughs> well, we'll see what the food's like in a second. <laughs> uh, it's been greatly hacked about and altered over the centuries, hasn't it? They it there has. used to be a central window, which yes, is gone. Yes, an arched window. And there's a plaque above the door saying that Elliot lived here for the first 21 years of her life. Moved here March 1820 when she was just a few months old and then left in 1841. It, it looks to me as if it was originally um, a typical Georgian box. Um, but it's been... The brickwork has been heavily altered over the years. You can see where the, the windows used to be in a completely different pattern. And it, it amounts to a rather quaint patchwork, which I th which appeals to me quite strongly. This spot we're standing in now feels rather neglected. You know, there's the noise of a busy road down there, and you know, it doesn't feel like this is somewhere where people are particularly meant to be and, and see the house. But but you get a sense of it having been rather a rather an impressive driveway at one point. You can imagine turning in at that corner and pulling up in front of the house. Yes, there's a small yew tree in the middle which plainly wouldn't have been there in the old days. Mm. So it's what, what we have is a large circle in front of the house in which to turn your coach. Yes, and what's now a busy A-road on the way to Coventry is uh, would have been the kind of lifeline between Coventry and, and Nuneaton in yes. Elliot's day. So much of Mill on the Floss is based at Dalcott Mill in, in a fictionalised version of this building that we're looking at. There's those wonderful descriptions of Maggie escaping to her attic childhood paradise where she has her toys and you know, goes to sort of think and be on her own. And apparently the attic of this house is very similar to the one that she describes in the book. It's actually not Maggie's description. That There's a description later in the book where I think it's Tom describes this spot where life seemed like a familiar smooth-handled tool that the fingers could clutch with loving ease. I think that's a lovely mm. description for a place, somewhere yes. that just feels smoothed and used and natural. You expect the place to be a mill, and actually it isn't, is no. it? Um, no. It's not actually on a river, as far as I can see. No. And so it has been fictionalised, turned, turned into another house than it is. It's funny, when I read the novel, I envisaged it as a largely a wooden building, and here it is, the Georgian brick one. <laughs> Shows how the reader writes the novel themselves. Right, yes. They, they do, yeah. Absolutely. I often think it's not worth putting in detailed descriptions of things because the readers People will just make it own. up on their own. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other thing which I think is nearby, which also features in the book, is the round pond where Maggie and Tom go fishing. And I think if we head through the car park over there, that pond still exists. It was a real one that Elliot used to play around. Where do you think... I saw some sort of life... I think it's literally behind that hedge, but I don't know. We're, we're kind of creeping out of the car park through a narrow gap between bushes, and now we're looking over a very crowded, bulrush-filled, but still quite round, pond. And this is how Elliot describes this pool in the, in the book. She says, That wonderful pool which the floods had made a long while ago. No one knew how deep it was. And it was mysterious, too, that it should be almost a perfect round, framed in with willows and tall reeds, so that the water was only to be seen when you got close to the brink. That's exactly the That's same. That's exactly what we've experienced, yeah. 
This is where Maggie catches a tench um, without even noticing that she's done so. <laughs> Tom, Tom holds it in and points it out to her. Let's While we're here, let's talk about Maggie's relationship with Tom and, and, and George Eliot's own relationship with her brother Isaac. We've touched on it a little already. I mean, in many ways, it's their sibling relationship which is the backbone of this novel. And many of the most memorable and moving passages are to do with their relationship, I feel. Tom, of course, is, he's fantastically obstinate, just like his father. That's the one characteristic he shares with his father, is he's obstinate. Yes. You know, T- Tulliver goes to law knowing that it's going to ruin him, and he still does it. And uh, Tom becomes sort of obstinately respectable. Yes. Um, even though it, it's, it's actually going to, in one respect, ruin his emotional life because his relationship with his sister is so important and so deep. There's a line where Eliot says, Tom, like every one of us, was imprisoned within the limits of his own nature. That's a very good line. That's a good line, isn't it? Very good line, yeah. As she's asking us to understand him, we may think he's unreasonable and obstinate, but she's asking us there to understand him. That, I suppose, saying that each one of her readers has, has got the same... Has got, has got their own blind has spot. Has got certain limits. And yeah. I think she's also saying there that maybe the limits of Maggie's nature are a lot broader but she can accept other ways of living and other ways of loving except of course she's blocked off by her social circumstances I mean even poor old Dr Ken who tries to take care of her and is such a reasonable good hearted clergyman in the end he has to move her on because of the gossip yes a man as strong and kind as that was influenced in the end by public opinion yes that's an awful moment isn't it where you think finally someone can kind of mediate here and, and stand up for Maggie and even he can't he has to bow to social pressure because he's accountable to his self-righteous parishioners it's amazing to think of Marianne Evans as a child coming with her brother Isaac and playing around this pool mm. just like Maggie and Tom do there's a line about Tom and Maggie growing up I wonder if Louis you'd be happy to read this one life did change for Tom and Maggie And yet they were not wrong in believing that the thoughts and loves of these first years would always make part of their lives. We could never have loved the earth so well if we had had no childhood in it. If it were not the earth where the same flowers come up again every spring that we used to gather with our tiny fingers as we sat lisping to ourselves on the grass. I like that. It feels like Mm. the way that lives build up in layers and that your childhood memories form a foundation for the person you grow into. George Eliot's terribly good at this sort of practical philosophising, isn't she? Mm. It's, it's gone mm. out of fashion in modern writing. Writers yes. don't dare do it. Right. Do you know, one of the things I really love about reading George Eliot is the kind of position she takes between you, the reader, and the text. And I, I feel like it's halfway between... If you think of an 18th century novel where an author is kind of stage managing the plot and kind of telling you, you're bringing people on and explaining what's going on. And then if you think of the end of the 19th century with modernist novels where you're right inside someone's head and you're, you're sort of experiencing what they're experiencing. I feel like George Eliot is just brilliantly in between. She's, she's so psychologically subtle and, and astute. But she's also not afraid to, as you say, to step back and kind of comment on what she's... Yeah showing you and, and yeah. um, she, she is an omniscient narrator you know, mm, you know she's the mm. author who knows absolutely everything in everybody's universe on the surface of it she doesn't leave it to you to figure out the characters she knows and 
you know that she knows. But she's also capable of stepping a, a step further back. Yes. And commenting on it from the outside. Yes. And you like the first chapter, don't you, where it's where there's a narrator looking at the bridge? It's, well, it's unusual. I mean, it's it, she almost sets it up like the whole thing is a kind of dream that she's the author's sort yeah. of humming. That, that's the one thing in the book I don't like, because I don't like authorial intrusion. Mm. When, when the author intrudes, I was thinking, you know, go away, get off. You're, you're spoiling the illusion. Right. Um, it's, it's interesting she does that, isn't it? I mean, it goes so quickly. It's, it almost feels it, like she was working her way into writing it. Yes, I think I have that impression. That's how, that's how she got herself going and mm. then couldn't bear to sacrifice it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I suspect it's the beginning of a memoir. Oh, do you think? Mm. But maybe she hadn't... wasn't quite sure what she was writing initially. <laughs> yes, yes. We've got access to the Arbury Estate, uh, and we're stepping out now onto the lawn in front of a beautiful farmhouse, South Farm. And this is the house where George Eliot was born. Mary Ann Evans was born to her parents, Robert Evans and Christina Evans, in this house in 1819. And, in fact, the current occupant of the house is with us now, Adam Weaver. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, So, Adam, your role here on the Arbury Estate, you are the land agent. You you have the same job that George Eliot's father had. I I have. Um, Robert Evans was the estate manager in 1819. Uh Um, I inherited the job um, 12 years ago. And by chance, um, I'm still living in the house which he lived in. Wow. Um, at South Farm. So tell us, I mean, what does that role involve being the land agent of an estate like this? Well, the the estate itself, we've got about 5,000 acres um, centred around Arbury Hall, um, which is just to the north of South Farm. Mm -hmm. So the hall itself with the house and gardens. um, And then on the estate, we have um, an in-hand farm. um, And then we have a number of let farms with tenant farmers, very much probably like the days when Robert Evans was here. Um, and then we have a number of let properties and, and cottages and things as well on the estate. So I look after all of those. And tell us about South Farm. It's a, I mean, from looking at it, it's a, it's a beautiful house in a stunning location. You've got apple trees outside your windows. What's it like living here? It is. It's, it's good fun to live in. The house itself hasn't really changed. There's various old pictures from the 1800s we've got. Um, the little bay window on the kitchen, which you can see, is, is really very much the same, exactly the same on the outside as it was years ago. Inside, it's a really comfortable house to live. Um, we, we occupied George Eliot's parents' old bedroom wow. where she was born. Um, Gosh, so. Wow. Um, so that that's sort of a, I suppose it's all part of history, isn't it? Really, so it's a bit of fun, and I think I think she'd very much recognise the house and the and the house, the gardens, and the and the farm buildings around, which have changed very little in the last sort of two hundred years. I imagine it was it would have been a very noisy place to be because you've got a, a milking parlour just nearby, and presumably lots of stables and um, carriages and coaches and things. Yeah, you'd have had as a working farm. I mean, the, the estate at that time would have been lots of sort of fifty hundred acre principally dairy farms so you'd have Mm. had cows um, working horses a classic Warwickshire farm with a house with a with a traditional set of buildings right next door Mm. and when 
Robert Evans lived here, it was really much, very much of a, what they call a model farm. It wasn't very far from the house, so you'd have had the best set of buildings and, and things to come and have a look at. Yeah, you the can cows hear, in the, background hear the cows now. now. You can really imagine it. It's a very tranquil spot, you can really... <laughs> Milking time. <laughs> Adam, let me ask, am I right that when George Eliot was born here, after a few months they left the house? She was. It wasn't very long. She was only a few months old and then they moved to Griff House. Okay. Um, but I think she would have known South Farm well because she, as she was growing up, she did spend a lot of time at Arbury Hall yes. and um, the, the, the drive goes directly past the, the farm here. So I think she knew the hall, the house and the estate very well on her travels. Did, did her father remain the land agent after the move? He did, yeah. He got a bit of a promotion, I think. And um, when, when he moved to Griff House, they gave him um, a bit of land to go with it to increase his living, I think. Mm -hmm. And then Robert Evans stayed as land agent. And then Marianne Evans's brother then took over after father. Oh, I hadn't realised that. Isaac Evans became uh, the Isaac agent. Evans took over after. How interesting. And yes, because the connection must have been there because she used to come and use the library at Arbury Hall and um, and we heard earlier that she played the piano here as yeah, well. Yeah, the Newdigate family, I think, were very kind to her over the years. And I think as she was growing up, she had sort of, probably at the time, a sort of unrivaled access really into the libraries and everything there, which was sort of slightly unusual. Yeah. But I think she made the most of it. Thinking about Robert Evans living and working here, he's, it feels like he's very much written into the mill on the floss. There are elements of him in Mr. Tulliver. Um, I mean, it sounds like Robert Evans was a very um, uh, conscientious, good, you know, he was a good bookkeeper, good businessman, unlike Mr. Tulliver. But the way in which Mr. Tulliver dotes on what he calls his little wench, Maggie, it sounds like Mary Ann had a really close relationship with her father. You wonder what her mother was like in, in view of... Because in, in The Mill on the Floss, that the mother is really quite dim, isn't she? Yes. She, 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 she's uneducated and uninteresting yes and and like the other aunts right well like the aunts sort of obsessed with things like um the quality of her tablecloths mm -hmm. yes very sort of but yes, it's but it's charming. still an affectionate portrait of mm -hmm. you know a dull woman but yes the, the sad thing is that when marianne was only 16 her mother died and at that young age she basically became her father's housekeeper and and um sort of took over that uh, role from her mother. And of course, later when they moved from this area to Coventry in 1841, that's when her father began to become increasingly ill. And it's said that the letters that George Eliot wrote while she was nursing her own father are very similar to the thought processes that Maggie goes through when she's nursing her dying father in The Mill on the Floss. So uh, another way that this novel is a way of Eliot revisiting and, and perhaps exorcising some of those early experiences. You know, talking about her parents makes me think we've touched a little bit on the aunts in Mill on the Floss, but we, I feel like we haven't really emphasised enough how much humour there is in this book as well. They, they, the, the Dodson aunts, uh, Maggie's mother's three sisters, are just hilarious, and you can imagine them descending on this cottage. Mrs. Mrs. Clegg, with her obsession with what is or is not suitable for Dodsons to do or have. Yes. And sort of classic lines like, I'm not giving any advice since nobody's asked me for any. <laughs> <laughs> 
so Aunt Gleg is a particularly kind of ferocious one. And there's a moment where uh, Mr. Gleg, um, Aunt Gleg's husband, realizes that Aunt Gleg is in a bad mood. So he decides not to say anything just in case because he doesn't want to trigger an outrage. And then um, because he hasn't said anything, she takes out as an excuse to launch into a, an attack on him. <laughs> Well, um, she she does come good in the end, though, if you remember. She does. She's she one does. of the people who actually is kind to Maggie at yes, the end. that's true. Which that's is um, true. most unexpected and quite a And good... she invests in Tom, doesn't she? She's mm. Yeah, she kind of... You're right. What was this little quadrangle for here? It's the old pig pen. Pig pen? Oh. Yeah. Wow. And the, oh. Under the ivy, you can see the, oh, yeah. the hole for the pig to pop out, so... <laughs> not not very far to go and get rid of your get rid of the scraps. Yes, of course, straight out of the kitchen. Yeah, it was just moved next door from the lawn in front of the farm building into the farm itself, a courtyard with the milk shed on one side and stables on the other, and I can see some hens behind chicken wire over there. Is so there a dovecot as well on, yes. the, on one of the gables? Yeah. An old dovecot. It's interesting, isn't it? But the landscape that George Eliot was born into and brought up in, because I think. It was both very rural, and, you know, she was born on a working farm and, and, and beautiful landscape all around, but it was also an industrial landscape, wasn't it? There were quarries nearby, there was the big city of Coventry not far away. Well, we're stood here, and it's a very sort of an ideal of, a, of, a, of the countryside, but you've got to remember the West Midlands is sort of based on, on coal and, and sort of what would have been there for fairly heavy industry of brickworks, etc. Yes. So, and that was all very much part of the estate life, the coal mines and everything, and, and that, that's all unfortunately gone now, but it, it, it would have been very much a, an industrial landscape at the time, and um, the house and park at Arbury how the woods are planted, everything's planted. It was, it was never to look out beyond the park, but it was to protect the hall and the grounds actually from the industrialization right. beyond. Very much along the eastern and northern boundary and, and to the south, there were, were coal mines. Right. Um, so there would have been clouds of steam and black smoke snow, and the smell of yeah. sulfur. No, it would have been, yeah. We're just walking up the drive now towards Arbury Hall, which is appearing through these beech trees that we're walking past and gosh it's really it's a beautiful castellated mansion house reflected in the lake in front of it so the view we're looking at now is um, from the southwest of the hall and that's very much unchanged in the last 200 years wow um, the hall as you see it dates from about 1750 um, Behind the stone facade, um, there is an old brick house which was built in the late 1500s. And behind the brick, there was a monastery until Henry VIII came along. Um, and everyone else sort of, he said he burnt down all the monasteries. Well, he, he never burnt down anything because everything was too valuable to destroy at the time. So he plundered off with the art and the treasures that he could take or they could take with them at the time and they sold the property. And, a, and a, what we would sort of describe as a, an Elizabethan brick house was built. Um, and then in 17, mid 1700s, Sir Roger Newdigate decided um, to remodel the house on a Gothic revival uh, style of which you see now. And Arbury and Strawberry Hill are really the two sort of classic Gothic revival houses of the period. And the Newdigate family who you just mentioned, they were the family that were living here when George Eliot was here, and the family is still living in the house. They're still here. They, they, the Newdigates have been here since 1586. 
um, when they moved from Middlesex. Um, um, the estate where they were at the time was uh, Harefield Place, which is now just inside the M25, which they announced, I think, in 1586, London was impinging upon them. And they, <laughs> and they swapped estates with the owners of uh, Arbury and have been here ever since. She includes a description in her first work of fiction, Scenes of Clerical Life, of Chevrel Manor, but it, it seems to be an absolute dead ringer for Arbury Hall. Um, Adam, would you be happy to read out a paragraph? This is George Eliot's description of the scene we're looking at now. A charming picture Chevrel Manor would have made that evening if some English Watto had been there to paint it, the castellated house of grey tinted stone with the flickering sunbeams sending dashes of gold light across the many shaped panes in the mullioned windows and a great beech leaning athwart one of the flanking towers and breaking its dark flattened boughs, the too formal symmetry of the front, the broad gravel walk winding on the right by a row of tall pines alongside the pool, on the left branching out among swelling grassy mounds, surmounted by clumps of trees, where the red trunk of a Scotch fir glows in the descending sunlight against the bright green and limes of acacias. Gosh, thank you. And it's quite sort of uh, eerie, actually, hearing that red and looking at exactly the scene she's describing with the gravel walk, the mullioned windows. It's a beautiful spot. Adam, thank you so much for letting us visit the Arbury Estate today. It's been a real pleasure to come and see these locations. Nice to see you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. How lovely the little river is, with its dark, changing wavelets. It seems to me like a living companion while I wander along the bank and listen to its low, placid voice, as to the voice of one who is deaf and loving, I remember those large, dipping willows. I remember the stone bridge. We've just stopped on the banks of one of the Arbury lakes on an afternoon that's become beautifully sunny with white clouds in the sky. And while we're here at the water's edge, it's a good moment maybe to talk about water in this novel and, and the way that from the first sentence of the novel, rivers are running through it. Well, I, I come from East Anglia, and we, mm. we, we do have a problem quite regularly with a very high tide confronting a river in spate, mm-hmm. which means the rivers cannot drain into the sea, and so they just rise up over the land. It's I, I You can't help noticing in the novel when you read it that mm. there are two or three places where she drops a heavy hint Big that hint. there's going yes. to be a flood. Yes. yes. It, you sort of, she warns you that it's coming. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It definitely feels like this river that's running past the childhood home it becomes a kind of image of Maggie Tulliver in the book, this kind of, sort of impetuous, rushing yeah. um, character. And th- there's this line I, I think is so interesting where Elliot says, the tragedy of our lives is not created entirely within. Maggie's destiny then is at present hidden and we must wait for it to reveal itself like the course of an unmapped river. We only know that the river is full and rapid and that for all rivers there is the same final home. I love that. There's so much going on in that, but I love the image of life as an unmapped river, that you're you're following its course, and you don't know which landscape it's going to weave through, but you know where it's going to get to in the end. Elizabeth Jane Howard wrote a fabulous short story about some people drifting along a river 
which gets wider and wider and wider, and then they have less and less of a clue where they are. And it, it, mm. it's, it's clearly a metaphor for the voyage of life towards mm. death, whether the ocean symbolises death. Yes, spreading out into a kind of, has less energy and less direction. Whereas, of course, Maggie is, is impetuous and full to the end because she's carried by this flood tide. Of course, she's also carried down it against her will by Stephen. Yes. Which has uh, nothing to do with that. I don't know, that makes the point that, it's sort of, that, in a way, that wasn't her fault and nothing to do with her, but it altered the course of her life. Yes. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about Philip Wakeham when we were in Griff Hollows, and we've talked about Tom Tulliver. The other male figure in the story is Stephen Guest, who is courting uh, Maggie's cousin, Lucy Dean, and is expected to marry Lucy. And almost against his and against Maggie's will, they're drawn together, they're attracted to each other. They, they see in each other the same spark of energy and impetuosity. And in a crucial scene, when Maggie thinks she's getting into a boat with Philip, at the last minute, because of a practical confusion, she gets into that boat with Stephen and is born down the river, well, up the river and then down the river, by Stephen's rowing and it changes the course of her life and the course of the novel. It goes too far and, and she, 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 she's been away too long. She, um, she has to return home in a coach, doesn't she? Yes. Which she does by a curiously roundabout route because she got into the first coach she found and accidentally right. went to York. Yes, right, miles so away. She got, she got home days late and obviously in that way um, accidentally set herself up for a sort of for extreme disgrace, you know, for presumably now being a fallen woman, which of course she was not. Stephen promptly absconds to France, doesn't he? Because yes. he's so conscious of the disgrace. Yes. And you feel in that that, as a reader, you feel it's so unfair that, you know, nothing has actually happened. She's just uh, uh, broken social taboos. And you feel that Elliot was putting into that her experience of setting up with George Henry Lewis, feeling like she's done nothing wrong. Why is she being vilified for this, mm. for what she sees as following her own heart. It's terrifying, those passages of social ostracism that Maggie experiences. The first time I read the book, I suppose, when I was doing it for A-level at the age of 18, I wondered whether Stephen Guest was in any way sincere. But re on rereading, I, I think I think he was. I don't think he was just, for example, a sexual or romantic opportunist. I, I now think it, there was a genuine, sort of very strong mainly physical, perhaps, connection between the two, which was impossible to resist. Yes, which they both try to resist. The connection with Philip has everything you could ask for apart from the physical one. Well, Stephen's also got the music and he's beautiful. And it's very touching that before the end of a novel, she makes up with Philip by correspondence and she has a scene with her cousin, Lucy, where they... Where Lucy forgives her. Lucy forgives her. And it's um, it's only her own brother, Tom, who can't forgive her until mm. this final climactic scene. It's interesting that Eliot wrote to her friend, the novelist Edward Bulwer-Lytton, that the Epicha Brita, into which I was beguiled by love of my subject in the first two volumes of Mill on the Floss, caused a want of proportionate fullness in the treatment of the third, which I shall always regret. And I, th I think that's an interesting observation, because there is a sense in which she is very free and expansive in the first two sections. She spends lots of time enjoying talking about Maggie's childhood and you know the social comedy of the aunts and, and her relationship with Tom. And so when you get to the third volume, it does feel like the plot 
kind of kicks in quite quickly and everything sort of happens at a pace which doesn't maybe match the first two volumes. I, I didn't spot this problem until I read her own comment about it. Right. <laughs> so I, from, from, my, from, from my point of view, she got away with it. And I had a similar problem with Captain Crowley's Mandolin. I had to cover an immense number of years in it. I mean, if I hadn't done that, the book would have been enormously long. And I, I, this book, The Mill on the Floss, could have been as long as Middlemarch. Yes. But you, you can sort of run out of energy and run out of plot. And you're also conscious that you've got to keep the pace. Uh-huh. And I didn't notice a, a significant difference in the pace. And that's probably why I didn't notice that the last portion was sort of sketchier than the first two. So maybe she, she shouldn't she, have. <laughs> she had an artistic problem, which I think she she managed to solve well enough to get away with it. Mm-hmm. So, Louis, after our walk today and after visiting these locations, has it changed the way you think about this novel at all? It's changed the landscape of the novel for me because, obviously, it was a landscape that I'd imagined when reading the book. Mm-hmm. So I think, for me, the nicest bit uh, to find out was, was the Red Deeps, was Griff Hollow. Mm. That was even better than I'd imagined, if you know what I mean. Mm. I hadn't imagined it to be so sort of wonderfully overgrown with different types of tree arching over these paths with the sunlight just dappled sunlight just coming through it was quite magical that place very atmospheric yeah so that was better than anything i could imagine on my own Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) louis thank you so much for walking with us today it's been such a pleasure to explore george Eliot's countryside with you and to finish would you give us one more reading from the novel I will. Thank you very much for having me. The wood I walk in on this mild May day, with the young yellow-brown foliage of the oaks between me and the blue sky, the white star flowers and the blue-eyed speedwell, and the ground ivy at my feet. What grove of tropic palms, what strange ferns or splendid broad-petaled blossoms could ever thrill such deep and delicate fibres within me as this home scene? These familiar flowers, these well-remembered bird notes, this sky with its fitful brightness, these furrowed and grassy fields, each with a sort of personality given to it by the capricious hedgerows. Such things as these are the mother tongue of our imagination, the language that is laden with all the subtle, inextricable associations the fleeting hours of our childhood left behind them. Many thanks to Louis de Bernier, Adam Weaver and the Arbury Estate, Catherine Nisbet and the Nuneaton Museum and Art Gallery, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. And that brings us to the end of the first series of On the Road with Penguin Classics. If you enjoyed these episodes, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll join you again before too long with Series 2. One last thing. In Daniel Deronda, the last novel that George Eliot wrote in 1876, she has a line about the importance of locations which it feels appropriate to recall here. A human life, she says, should be well-rooted in some spot of a native land where it may get the love of tender kinship for the face of the earth.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.